Good morning. Let's open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get going. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much, Lord Jesus, that, that you have a plan. I thank you that you are in control of all things, and that in you, it's, it's amazing, Lord, to see that with you there is no beginning and end. There's no time. Um, you're not constrained to that, and, and yet you bring us into your plan. And I just pray, Lord, if there's anybody here with a conviction to be an evangelist, to share the good news, as we all should, I pray that you would just give them the power and the boldness to do so, Lord, and as we have seen your faithfulness, Lord. And I just pray now that you would help me to bring your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so what I, what I meant with my statement there, Christians, and confu- Christians are confused in Lacrete. Honestly, people are confused. And they're thinking people are empty, people are searching, that's what it seems like. But they're searching for, for all these fillers that won't actually fulfill. I had coffee with a guy or night lunch with a guy yesterday. And, and Isaiah was, you know, talk be boring and on and on. And I have a sigh into music, and I will yearn to sign his art music now and bring in a talk now because I have to offer the answer to to seeing the problems. And I didn't even know how to answer that with, with, with this, but guys, music, we all know music won't fulfill that void. Um, as, as, as I read your words to your song, I was touched again and incredibly encouraged to see what you guys are singing and to see that Jesus. You know, I heard a mission report a couple months ago or a month ago, whatever it was, and the mission report was about 45 minutes long, and I didn't hear them talk about Jesus once. Like, I, I just, my heart, my heart is actually, I don't even know if broken would be the right word for our town and lots of this stuff. People are, are caught up with music, they're caught up with buildings, they're caught up with schools, they're caught up with all these things that are, where's Jesus? And, and it's not just the church as far as the organization I'm worried about, it's about us as the church. Where is Jesus? And why are people so confused, right? And at the end of the day, I don't know, like, me worry thought. And, and even yesterday when the guys started talking about ding of your boring, and I just, today the message I'm, I'll bring you is it's on adoption. And honestly, sometimes when you bring a message, you feel like an idiot because you talk with people and the stuff they're talking about all week has absolutely nothing to do with sound doctrine. And so... Now here you're going to be the guy that's going to try your best to bring what you believe people need. It's kind of like when Anita says, Because Anita anybody when you ask the message bringer, you ask some Bible study down, or you do you the lifestyle I'm a coke bring? Because now we're happy because it's shine. But dort ist nicht, woran es fehlt. On Wednesday morning, 
Wenn du in deinem Office nennst, yes, und du bist konfrontiert mit einer Temptation, die du hast mit dir struggled für 10 Jahre, der letzte Ding, was dir fehlt, dass ein Leute leid on Sunday morning, die fehlt Doctrine, die fehlt and foundations that are called stone in the wiles of Satan, because Satan will be destroyed. And then as Ernfuck God, you know, that you have your sign this summer. And I said it not just to the extremes, and I said it because I mind it. And it's felt truth, and it's felt doctrine, and it's felt foundations. And it's felt crack what we say from there, or there's a thing about us reassuring that Jesus is praying for us. He is interceding on our behalf. He does care. He is on our side. It's not that actually yeah, in music, the fight you all out. Jake Dirksen loved music. But music, I suppose, is a tool through which we communicate truth. Music is never something we use to substitute truth. But at the end of the day, that's just the rant I came up here with. Uh, um, yeah, but what we want from the Elfan Reden as adoption and the whole idea of being part of a family and what comes with that family. And obviously I just spent time in Bolivia and I was with Martin and Margie. And Martin and Margie went to Bolivia thinking that they would go there, that they would plant a church, they would re reach the lost and they would do all these big things. And they've done many of them. But the most time that they've spent or th the thing they've spent the most time doing in Bolivia is working with an adoption. They felt God wanted them to adopt these two girls, and so they have gone about doing that. Akfrieh um, Martin, when we got there and I saw how much time was being spent on his adoption, I said, if you had known what this would cost, would you still have done it? And I answered me, Don. The next day, time I know me and said, Yo, I would. But adoption as a great thing, a great cost, right? But what I want to focus on today is the whole idea of these girls from where they came from. They came from a colony life where their mom was used as, as, as for impure things. And these girls are the product of that. They, they were in a home of confusion. They were in a home of danger. There was no stability. They were left to themselves. And now, by changing families, they have become part of a home that teaches God's word, that listens to God's word, that tries to uphold God's word. There's a dad in place that is there to protect them, to shepherd them, to help them. And it's all because of an adoption, the change of a family. And, you know, everything has changed for these girls. Their status in society, their material wealth, their future, everything has changed because of the adoption. And I just want to start reading one passage. It's in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. And basically what, this, what we'll be looking at this morning is the idea of being adopted from being in Adam to being in Christ and the change that we see in, in that. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 6 says, 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. And the, the part that I wanted to look at is that we have been adopted as sons by Jesus Christ to God himself. God has predestined us to adoption. He has called us out to himself through Jesus Christ. And what I wanted to focus on here is that to the good pleasure of his will. You know, it, 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 brought, it brought God pleasure to think that he would adopt us. It brought God pleasure to think that he would bring us into his family. God wanted to adopt you. God was not forced or obligated to adopt you. But this adoption has a very big price, and God knew what it would cost before he ever set out to adopt you. We see in Galatians 3.3 and Galatians 4, 4 to 5, that there's a direct connection between adoption and redemption. Adoption comes with a price. And my mind went to Luke chapter 14, verse 25 to 32, where Jesus is speaking to, to his disciples and to the people that are following him, and it reads, Now a great multitude went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king does not set down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple." And my mind went to that when I thought about adoption. My mind, because in essence, when there's a command in Scripture, God never commands us to do something that he himself did not do, right? God never commands us to do something that Jesus Christ himself did not do. I believe that Jesus, if that isn't true, then Jesus wouldn't be able to make the, make the appeal and say, come and follow me. Jesus is saying, come and follow me. He's saying, come and do what I did. B carry the yoke that I carry. Walk with me. And so I believe then that Jesus Christ, and as we see in Isaiah 59, when they looked down from heaven, they saw there was no justice on the earth. And there was no, there was no one to stand in the gap. There was no one to, nothing good left. So Jesus Christ counted the cost you know, like it says, which of you would start to build a tower? Or how would it look if you started to build a tower, you were halfway through, 
and you couldn't finish. You would look you you would look like an idiot. You would look like someone who hadn't counted the cost. You would look like someone who didn't know what he was doing. Jesus Christ himself finished. Like isn't that it's it's interesting how you can even get assurance of salvation from this passage. But Jesus Christ didn't begin to build a tower and then couldn't quite finish it. He he counted the cost and he set out to fulfill that cost. He set out to fulfill what was required to bring mankind back into a right relationship with him. And he was willing to take the cost upon himself being obedient to the point of death. In this is love, 1 John 4.10, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know, it says here that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And as we were talking before about confusion and people not knowing, you know, what will fill that void, it's, it's, it's in learning more about God and learning in the act of salvation what is propitiation? What does that mean that Jesus Christ was the propitiation for our sins, right? And I think of the story of David and Nabal. I believe it was Nabal. Nabal and, and uh, what was his wife's name? Rachel? Rebecca? I forget. Huh? Abigail. There we go. It was Abigail. And uh, so anyway, Nabal and Abigail had this big farm and they were taking care of thousands of sheep. And some of their sheep sometimes got into trouble out in the mountains and David and his men, they would take care of their sheep. They would take care of Nabal's sheep. Though they were not his, he would, he would care for them and take care, uh, make sure that they didn't die and he would go out of his way to look out for his neighbor. So one day David finds himself in deep trouble and, and he thinks, you know what? I've done Nabal many favors. I will go and make an appeal to Nabal to see if he will come and help me with my flock. So Nabal gets the appeal, he gets the, the, the question, and he, and he turns around and says, your sheep aren't mine, basically I don't, I don't care, go vitey. And David obviously is filled with wrath, in which he should be, and he's, he's upset. And he, he gets his mighty men out, he gets the men of war out, and they go on the warpath to go and destroy Nabal. And as he gets closer all of a sudden, Abigail, who's the wife of Nabal, feels strongly that she should go because she gets scared. And she realizes the injustice of what has happened here. And she said, you know what, Nabal is drunk. I'll quickly take my servants, load up my donkeys, and we're going to make a peace offering to David to see if I can, you know, somehow save our flock, save, save everything, right? And so Abigail goes out with her donkeys loaded up, and she goes out to meet David and she makes an appeal to David saying, my Lord, please basically have mercy on us. Named as a gift, named that, you know, my husband has done a great wrong. We are Nabal. God has been good to us. God has always been good to us. God was good to Adam and Eve and man went and completely for broke the relationship, disobeyed God, spit in his face, 
We are Nabal. We're, we're, we're Nabal. We're the guy. David is God. God has every right to come with all his wrath and destroy us. Jesus Christ is Abigail. Jesus Christ is the one who became the propitiation. He turned away the wrath of God so that we would no longer be, as it says in Ephesians, children of wrath, but that we could be alive through Christ Jesus. That's propitiation. That's why Paul can say there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, right? We have been predestined to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. It brought God pleasure to adopt us. He wanted us to be his children so much that he gave his only begotten son so that the price could be paid for our adoption. We are here this morning to remember this price. You know, sometimes we, we, we look back, you know, at, on November 11th with World War II ending and all that, and we take time and we, and we, we bear in mind these people that have suffered great tragedies for the sake of freedom, right? For the sake of us being free. And how lightly often do we count this great payment that Jesus Christ has made on our behalf? As your grandpa, Lauren, has says, you know, and the difference between the adoption of Martin and Margie and the adoption of God is that God knew exactly what it would cost before he set out to do it. And he still did it. So Paul, let's take it to the context of the Ephesians for a while. Paul is saying to these, how could Paul say to these Ephesian people, who Gentiles, how could he say that they had been adopted? He describes their state in Ephesians 2.1. He says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. See, just like Adam and Eve, they were separated from the life of God. Ephesians 2.2, In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So Paul's, the, the question I'm, I have here is, you know, we see these Ephesian people, if you do your research in Acts, they were caught up in witchcraft and in the occult. How can Paul say, God has adopted you? You know, they're children of wrath. They're hell-led. They're led, they're in the yoke being led to hell by the spirit of disobedience that is still in the world today. It says here, uh, John Piper, a quote by him, I like this, I found this yesterday. It says, God did not find us like an abandoned foundling bundled on the front step and irresistibly cute. He found us ugly and evil and rebellious. We were not attractive. We would not be easy children to deal with. And what's worse, God himself was angry with us. <clears throat> he hates sin and rebellion. We were then doubly children of wrath. These are the ones God pursued in adoption. Therefore, all of God's adoptions crossed a greater moral and cultural divide than any of our adoptions could. The distance between what we are and what God is is infinitely greater than any distance between us and a child we might adopt. 
You know, sometimes if you're considering adoption, you're thinking, you know, how is this going to work? This child is from a different culture, a different land, different language. Everything is different. How's, like, there's such a big difference. Will this be a fit? Won't it be a fit? There's not a bigger difference than between the, us and God. And yet God crossed the greatest cultural bar- barrier to redeem and adopt us. Ephesians 2.12 that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So these Ephesian people, prior to them being in the family of God or prior to them being in Christ, they were aliens from the spiritual Israel. They were aliens from the covenants of promise. In other words, if there was a promise that was written, it wasn't for them. If there was hope that was given, it wasn't for them. If there was fellowship that, that they yearned for, possibly it wasn't for them. It's not for you, right? That was their state. They were without promise, no hope, without God in this world. And in Colossians one twenty one, Paul uses similar language when he says, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. That verse always strikes me. You know, We're not only alienated and enemies in our mind because we were born sinners, but we're alienated and enemies of God because of our wicked works. The works that we do naturally are creating an animosity between us and God, are creating, are are building up wrath on the day of the Lord. So how could God adopt and accept me and you? It seems like a great injustice. John Piper wrote, there writes, there were legal realities God had to deal with. Sometimes. There's a guys, you know, that are out in the field getting the work done. And they think, so we weren't but Schwen, there's a trench here groven. Now we have a Schwen, and so I'll be up finishing, and then I said, all that Derek, and yet somebody that's in the office and that's in the, in the heart of the business sees Die gas line, what do I ask? That's a huge deal. And those aren't legal consequences to us just crossing that gas line. So we need to first go and make sure that we're doing this legally, right? Well, in the same way, there were legal realities that God had to deal with. We are, we're not only enemies of God through birth, but through nature. And how is this going to work? How can God accept and adopt us into his family? His own justice and law demanded that we be punished and excluded from his presence for our sins. So God's own law condemns us being in his family. Righteousness was required and punishment demanded. God had to satisfy his justice and his law in order to adopt sinners into his family. This he did by the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. God had to satisfy his justice and his law in order to adopt sinners into his family. You know, there is an attitude going on in the Christian world today where sin is kind of, we have grace, right? And grace is just kind of this awesome word that covers everything we don't understand and don't even care to know, but it's just grace. 
and then we're all good and then we watch more hockey and we don't actually go and study, right? Because we have grace. doesn't matter. Every single sin that you and I have committed was laid upon Jesus Christ. That's the cost of grace. That's, that, that, that's not something you treat lightly. I always think about Peter after he had denied his Lord three times. Doesn't it say, maybe I'm wrong, but doesn't it say that Jesus looked at Peter? And what do you think was in his eyes when he looked at Peter? Betrayal? Hurt? Rejection? Yeah, he was fully God, but he was also fully man. The very act that Peter was committing solidified Jesus in his obedience that somehow we have to deal with this human race. Somehow we need to deal with this sin. And if you can treat sin lightly, maybe it's time for you to take a Sunday and imagine Jesus Christ looking at you because you too have rejected and betrayed him. It is not a cheap thing. It's not something small. Think about it. We are temporal. We are physical. And we have been brought into a family that is eternal and that is spiritual. Something very, very massive has happened in the heavenly places. And that happened when our sin was imputed to Jesus Christ. And he bore that penalty. And he bore that sin. How you respond to the grace of God determines if you are born again. Peter, when he understood the grace of God, when he understood what, who Jesus was and what Jesus could do, he says, oh, whoa, whoa, depart from me. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when he starts to see who God is and is confronted with the holiness of God, he says, depart from me. Judas when he sees who Jesus is and what Jesus is and, and how, all the same works that Peter saw, he counted it like nothing and went for 30 pieces of silver. It's like Jacob and Esau. Esau counted the eternal blessing of God worth of less value than a bowl of soup. We laugh at that. That's hilarious, isn't it? But how about us? What are you living for? What do you count worth? What, what is it worth to you, what Jesus did? To, honestly, this, this week I was challenged in my thinking because I went out to Fox Lake and worked at the health center there and I talked with the head nurse. And I asked the nurse, I said, how many years have you been here? Three years. Okay. And I didn't say much else, but I thought this person must have an incredible love for people, that they are willing to lay aside their comforts, because he has all his training. He could work in Edmonton or Calgary or La Crete or somewhere awesome. And he chose, chooses to live in Fox Lake. And I said to my dad, I said, it's actually a bit embarrassing. <laughs> we Christians, we claim to have this good news that will transcend, transcend time. We claim to have these promises that will that will bring us from this present eternal or this present temporal groaning to an eternal bliss where we are in the presence of God forever. We say we hold those promises and we love them and and yet we are not willing to give one day, one evening, 
for the Lord. I, I, I sometimes think, okay, we have these people who aren't even born-again believers. They're willing to sacrifice their life and go and live in Fox Lake to help people, to give them something temporal. They will still, after they've been bandaged, and if they haven't been given the good news, they will still go to hell and receive the consequences of God's judgment. But these nurses are willing to pay that price to be there for their physical good. If we are truly convinced that we are offering an eternal hope, I believe if we are truly convinced, then we will go out there and we will pay the price. We will live for that day. But as long as we're not really convinced of that reality, eh, grace, right? It doesn't really matter. Really. And I'm not just, I'm not giving you guys a hard time. I'm, I'm, these are things that I, I, I work through in my heart to see, stamped it, stamped it what we glive. Is that be convinced of adoption? You know, I was talking with one guy the other day, and sorry if I'm preaching long, I don't get that many chances, or I do, but I'm busy some days, and so I talk long when I do, but anyway, sorry. But I was talking with one guy the other day, and we were talking about salvation, and we were talking about if, if we can have assurance of salvation. And, and the guy just said to me, he said, you know what, if, if we don't think we can know that we're saved, or if we believe that we can just kind of lose it, or kind of like we lose our keys, we lose our salvation, then really we don't have good news. Then really the religion that we're bringing isn't good news. We're just bringing more condemnation. Because now we're going to educate them and bring them to a place where they completely understand salvation and everything, but then we're going to tell them, oh, and it, it, it's just maybe. And we're actually going to, we're better off leaving them alone. They probably have a better chance of making it that way. Because at least then maybe they're not aware of the full, full, full price or the, the law. But if, if you are convinced that when you die, your soul will go to be with Jesus Christ, and that is safe in the hands of God, if you are convinced of that reality, then and only then will you go into all the world. Because if you're not convinced of that future reality and the glorification and the promises of God, I actually think you're not very smart to waste your life on God now for something that you don't know what's coming. Right? It's only people, once they become fully convinced of the grace of God and the adoption of God, that they will begin to bear fruit. That they will begin to say, you know what? I know what's coming, therefore I'm going to live for the Lord now because on that day I will get everything. It will be all good, right? But if you're not convinced it's going to be all good on that day, it's kind of like making a big investment if you're not really sure it's going to give dividends. In business, if a guy would come to me, and I'm not even a business mind, but there's way better business minds in here. But in business, if someone comes to me and says, I have no idea as to what Yelp mountain. I have no idea as to what schaffen. But I must schaffen. Best willing to 100,000 geben. And I can't be 100,000. Oh boy, no, not really, I see any willing, no. 
But if they go in and meet out and say, I fight for it, I fight that watch often. I fight for it because it's, it's sure and steadfast. And he's going to tell me, you know what? And once you give your 100,000, well, the return that you will get will be so far and greater and beyond that you're never even going to think about the 100,000 again. I'm going to take and sign a check right there and I'll even be willing to live a, a, a poor man's life because I know what's coming. No other foundation can a man lay than that foundation which is Jesus Christ our Lord. I got sidetracked in a sense, but not really, because these things that we're learning are the, the blessings that we see that are part of being in Jesus Christ. So there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and mercy are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So, this is the human race. And this is who we are before as we're in Adam, in the family of Adam. Our carnal mind is enmity against God, Romans 8, 7. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So, that, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Jeremiah seventeen nine. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah seventeen ten. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. You know, when I read those verses, I think, oh boy, you know. Our heart is bad. It's deceitful. It's wicked. Our mouth, our ears, our body parts, it's bad. Who can know it? And then it goes further to say that God will give every man according to, his, to the fruit of his doings. If you're here today and Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior, if you have not prayed to him, to ask him for forgiveness for the sins that you have committed against him, then you will in your body receive the payment according to the fruit of your doings. But we see that God is holy and perfect in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Guys, there's a verse that's so common knowledge. But this is what we build on, right? This is, keep putting your feet on these things, reminding yourself of these things. You see, the Old Covenant confined all men under sin. The Old Testament ended with a threat and a curse. But the New Testament ends with, starts with blessing. It starts with Jesus who came to lift the curse. Romans 3 teaches us that the Old Covenant, the Tzach, it was given so that the whole world would become guilty before God. This is the curse. You know, the word curse is commonly used nowadays, and it, it, it can mean whatever you want it to mean, but at the end of the day, there is no greater curse than being a sinner and not being able to change it. I've felt that. 
Have you guys felt that where you're, you're condemned? You can't do anything about it. You, you, the, the fruit of your life is showing that you're not a nice person. That's a curse, right? But as we read in Galatians chapter 3, that Christ Jesus became a curse because curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's, that's amazing when you think about that. That the whole price, the whole legal process that had to occur to bring man to God is all in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So how can you have a big mission report without talking about him? Romans chapter 5 verse 12. I love this passage. And basically it covers some foundational things that need to be talked about. And it says, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. So through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death came as a result of sin. 5.13, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. So saying that the payment for sin was still in effect, even though the law, because from Adam to Moses, you have to remember the Ten Commandments weren't given yet, right? The Ten Commandments came when Moses on the mountain, right? Did that mean from Adam to Moses people lived forever? No. Upon the first sin is when you are separated from the life of God and death reigns, whether or not you know better. Oh boy, that condemns the whole world, and it really does. Because then we're thinking about all these tribal people and all these people in the mountains that have never heard. Sin separates you from the life of God, regardless of knowledge. Nevertheless, death sin. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. And I should probably let Lauren come up here and talk about types, because Adam was a type of him that was to come. Meaning, there's something about Adam that we need to learn. There's a there's a spiritual rule that we need to learn. And that it happened with Adam that will also happen with the one who is to come. That is Christ, right? So what does this mean here, this type? So death spread to all men, even if they had not sinned according to the likeness of Adam. Adam is a type of him who was to come, a type of Christ. Romans 5.15, but the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. 
So uh, Matthew Henry says here, the disobedience of the first Adam ruined us. The obedience of the second Adam saves us. So meaning this idea that in Adam, we have all been called sinners. We've all been called condemned. We have no problem understanding that. We'll get there. I'll read a little bit further and we'll talk about that. For if by the one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just, therefore, as through one man's offense, just judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Our, our righteousness is tied to the obedience of someone else. Think about that. Your righteousness is tied to the obedience of someone else. Have you ever felt that weight, that, 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 that curse? I can't do it. I can't be obedient. I can't live out the law. It doesn't work. Well, Scripture here is very clear. It's teaching us that just as we were condemned through the disobedience of one man, we will also be justified through the obedience of one man. So condemned through disobedience, accepted through obedience. And I, even how it says, through one man's righteous act. We are saved. Many will be made righteous through the one man's act. Not many will be made righteous through many righteous acts. There's one act of righteousness that will make many righteous. That is freedom. Freedom from the curse of the law. We are saved because of the righteous act of our Father, Jesus Christ. No one can be saved by their own righteous acts. The passage teaches us plainly that in Adam all sinned, and therefore death spread to all men. This is our family standing. You know, we're talking about adoption. This is our family standing. This is how we are born. Cursed under the law, knowing good and evil. Therefore, no one is innocent. Therefore, no one can say they don't know. But this passage also teaches us that Adam is a type of him who was to come. A type here refers to a picture of one who is to come. Or you could say that a law is established showing that what Adam did was only a type or a shadow of the one who was to come. So if we think back to our illustration of first belonging to one family, receiving what they received, having their social status, their material wealth, their name and identity, but upon, uh, upon becoming or receiving adoption, it all changes. The interesting thing is this is simply because of adoption. There is no way that you can change your identity yourself or change the family you belong to. Christ Jesus is the answer. We are truly just recipients of a free gift. I'll read in 1 Corinthians 15 for a few verses here. 1 Corinthians 15:21 For since by man came death by man also came the resurrection of the dead For as in Adam all die even so in Christ all shall be made alive So we see clearly here guys two families the family of Adam and what did we inherit in Adam 
sin, death, and a curse, and the family of Jesus Christ, and what do we inherit if we join his family? You know, uh, Jesus, this is where adoption comes in, as Paul says in, in, in Ephesians. In John 3, he says you must be born again. It's interesting. It's actually something we can understand. If, if I want to become part of another family, I need to be born again, right? I need to have a new birth. I need to be brought from being under the sphere and the umbrella of Adam here, who is a, the head of the human race, and I need to be brought under Christ and into him who is the head and the, and the king of his church, his chosen bride. First, first Corinthians 15.45, and, and so it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. In other words, we warn Dan Litton from which we, if, if I'm a Dirksen, I'm going to act like a Dirksen. If I'm a Peters, I'm going to act like a Peters. If I'm, you know, if I'm a Giesbrai, I'm going to act like a Giesbrai. That's, that's what he's saying. Each one resembles the one that which he comes from. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. You need to be born again. You need to have the Holy Spirit poured into you, right? Having, as, as it says in Ephesians 1.13, having believed the word, having heard the word, having believed the word, and having been sealed, having received the Holy Spirit and having been sealed. See, in Christ we attain the resurrection of the dead. Death has been conquered. In Christ, the power of sin has been done away with. It's interesting. In Romans 5, it mentioned that Adam was a type of him that was to come. And in Corinthians, Christ is referred to as the second Adam. So here's just one observation I've made. And, and it says, or I just wrote here, we have no arguments with agreeing that in Adam all have sinned and he is the representative of all that are lost. I think most people will, I think even in Lecrete, most people will, well, they will. And we'll talk about the fall of man, they'll talk about Adam. And it will always come back to Adam and Adam is the guy we identify with as being the head of humanity. And that's why we're condemned and that's why we're lost because of Adam and Eve. We all know that. So we all without even thinking, identify our lostness to the character and person of Adam. We do that without even thinking twice. But why, after we are Christians, do we have such a hard time keeping the same rule and believing and saying that we are righteous as Christ is righteous? So if you have no problem identifying and accepting that your condemnation is tied to, to Adam, then why do you have such a hard time Believing that your righteousness is tied to Jesus Christ. Do you guys get what I'm saying? The, the connection here? It's a family identity. And as a born-again believer, you have been placed into Christ. 
having received the adoption by Jesus Christ to himself. That that changes your identity. You know, you you talk about your and, and, and people will talk about position and practice. Our position as believers is now we are in Christ. We are no longer under the wrath of God. You know, as it says in Mark, I believe Mark chapter one, when when Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit or God comes down on his own son and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If you are in Jesus Christ, Paul says in Ephesians here, it says, we have been accepted in the beloved. That word beloved is awesome because it doesn't get used very many times. And if it does get used, it just gets used to refer to Christ. And we have been accepted in the beloved. We have been called beloved because we are in Christ. That is your standing. That, that's what you have to go into all the world. It's not something that I love. I, I, well, no, I don't love it. I hate it. When people say, so basin Christian, ich checkte mir an, dass ich gerade like something sagt, am mir sagt, und dann sagt er, well, ich prove. Wort. Die Proofs von einem physical Mensch into this morphing evolutionary state to go on wie die Wasch Christ? Wie die Wasch Christian? Was meine ich proven? Wenn du basin Christian, dann bist du in Christian. Dann bist du in Christ. You have placed your faith in the work in obedience of Jesus Christ, you have humbled yourself to his lordship in your life, and you say, Lord Jesus, I come to you. You are worthy. You're worth it. I'm yours. Do you either bask in Christian or do you bask in Christian? Do you bask in, either bask in physical being, right? Or do you bask in, spir- in the spiritual? The realities are bad. Do you cost nicht proven to Christian sein? I quite need more for sure. Von a Bukak dots on Nando. I quest him more what exiles and like the proofs. That's either do you believe in the blood of Christ or don't you? And if you believe in the blood of Christ, then you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit and then he starts to work in you. And then it's not about you working for God, then it's about God working through you, isn't it? If that's true, if what we're saying is true today, because we hand on the good news. I'll jump here a couple pages here. But God has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance. That's what I in Colossians 12. We are now partakers of the inheritance of the saints and the light. So God has, through Jesus Christ, taking our sin upon himself and us being placed into Jesus Christ, we are now qualified to be partakers of the inheritance. The Spirit, Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Because you're in his family. You're going to receive what Christ receives. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. I have a quote here. I don't know from who it is, but it says, An heir is one who is legally entitled to the property or rank of another on that other person's death. Every believer in Jesus Christ is an heir of God, a joint heir with Christ. Redemption qualifies a believer to have access to the property of God and the status of sonship with God. Praise God, eh? 
Praise God. So, life in Adam's family, you'd say, well, it was one of rejection, it was one of a curse, it was one of obligation, and it was one of darkness. Life in Jesus Christ's family is one of adoption, of blessing, acceptance, and worship. I'm contrasting their worship with obligation. I'm contrasting darkness with light. I'm contrasting acceptance with, with rejection. And I'm contrasting adoption with rejection there. Yeah. So, so how much value is in, this blood of, in the blood of Christ? I just want to f- close by, by reading scripture. And then I'll close in a word of prayer. Romans 8.3 For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Colossians 1.13 He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 2.13 But now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near, referring to Jews and Gentiles. For through him we, have, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Paul, Paul states in Second Timothy that he is the chief of sinners, the worst of the worst, but the blood was even enough to make Paul accepted in God's eyes. The blood we remember today is the thing that can bring us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Second Corinthians 5.21 For He made Him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. In Him. The whole creation, this is a quote here by John Piper, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. But this strikes us as strange. Aren't we already adopted? Why does Paul say that we are waiting for our adoption? Yes, we are already adopted. When Christ died for us, the price was paid. And when we trust him, we are legally and permanently in the family. But God's purpose for adoption is not to leave any of his children in a state of groaning and suffering. He raised Jesus from the dead with a new body, and he promises that part of our adoption will be a new resurrection with no more disabilities. Sorry, a new resurrection body with no more disabilities and no more groaning. Therefore, what we wait for is the full experience of our adoption, the resurrection of our bodies. I'll just read this poem, or it's actually a song. 
My father is rich in houses and lands. He holdeth the wealth of the world in his hands. Of rubies and diamonds, of silver and gold, his coffers are full. He has riches untold. My father's own son, the savior of men, once wandered, once wandered on earth as the poorest of them. But now he is reigning forever on high, and he will give me a home in heaven by and by. I once was an outcast, stranger on earth, a sinner by choice, an alien by birth. But I've been adopted, my, my name's written down, an heir to a mansion, a robe and a crown. I'm a child of the king, a child of the king. With Jesus, my savior, I'm a child of the king. Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for the reality of your word. I thank you that it is true. And I thank you that on the day of judgment that you will still judge according to your word and that it doesn't, it doesn't depend on what we feel or what we perceive but what you have written. And Lord, there's things that we have covered today that are hard, easy to talk about and hard to understand some days. And Father, I just pray that you would just help us to understand more fully the love of God the width, the length, the breadth, and the depth, Lord, to be able to see the love and the complete fulfillment that Jesus Christ and his blood is for everything that's lacking on the part of humanity. Lord Jesus, may you please give us more understanding, give us more assurance, give us fuller grace, Lord, so that we would be active, Lord, knowing that what we offer truly is good news. Lord, may you please help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.